agencies across the federal government are turning to applied science and technology to modernize and improve mission delivery. In our podcast, Tackling Government Challenges Through Science and Technology, sponsored by Noblis, we'll be presenting a series of interviews featuring federal executives overseeing various programs and overcoming challenges with innovation. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Understanding disease and how it spreads often starts with understanding what's going on at the molecular level. At the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, a special program in the Office of Advanced Molecular Detection leads efforts to detect and understand threatening microbes and how they work. For an update, I spoke with the director of the office, Dr. Duncan McCannell. Biotechnology has seen some really incredible advances over the past few decades. And the primary job of the Office of Advanced Molecular Detection is to help guide that innovation towards public health applications and to figure out how to use these technologies to make and, and keep the public safe. Uh, a lot of the work that we do right now is around pathogen genomics, bioinformatics, and epidemiology. Uh, and we're actually celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the program. About 10 years ago, uh, as a lot of these technologies started to become more mainstream and more feasible to be used in public health applications, I think there was a recognition uh, across the agency that uh, the CDC, that the U.S. public health system really needed to start uh, making some concerted investments and, uh, and uh, efforts to try and build out this kind of capability. Uh, it's not just investing in technology in the laboratory and in the server room. It also means investing in people and ensuring that we have a strong, capable technical workforce that is able to actually use these technologies both now and in the future. So this was in place then ahead of the COVID pandemic. Was that a good thing in terms of CDC work during the pandemic? The fact that this this idea of molecular detection at an advanced level was already a capability that had been around for a few years. I think so. So, uh, you know, we work across all of CDC's infectious disease programs, and uh, that is an, an incredible strain. Uh, this means that we work on everything from changing how we use uh, these new technologies to detect and respond to foodborne disease outbreaks, uh, to uh, building better and faster diagnostics for pathogens like uh, Zika virus and better vaccines for flu. Uh, that means uh, everything from using these tools to help study antimicrobial resistance or antibiotic resistance in bacteria and fungal infections to uh, and, and including the massive scale up of variant surveillance for the COVID-19 response. Uh, if I take you back to the beginning of the the, uh, the COVID response, though, I think what we found was that you know even though all virtually all state and local public health departments had sequencing capability in in house, uh, a lot of it was built around uh, existing programs of uh, foodborne surveillance, flu surveillance, uh, and it became really challenging, especially in uh, in a time of extreme stress on the public health system. Uh, to try and pivot these resources and build uh, to make sure that we could actually use it for a new and emerging threat. Uh, so, you know, I think one of the challenges as we go forward is is figuring out how we uh, take a lot of these investments, take a lot of these lessons learned over the past few years, and ensure that we have the kind of flexibility, the kind of capability across the public health system uh, to respond to not only the threats we know, but also the threats uh, we can anticipate and some that we might not. That term sequencing comes up a lot in the literature around the detection and so forth, and you hear it in, in the context of genetic mapping and sequencing. Might be useful to define sequencing for the layperson, what that means. All life on Earth has a, has a genetic code, um, usually composed of nucleic acids. 
that's the blueprint that uh, that makes you you that makes me me um and the uh the pathogens that we study the the microbes the the germs that cause disease uh have their own genetic code uh, we can use these new tools to uh, to uh, basically decode this information at a very, very high degree of resolution. So we can read the individual bases in the genomes of these pathogens. Uh, and in doing so, we can understand uh, better how they are transmitting. Uh, we can understand the features that make them uh, make them dangerous or that may uh, that may give us some indication of how we can diagnose or treat them more effectively. Uh, but it allows us to really study these organisms at a, at a very, very fine degree of detail and use that uh, for public health purposes. So the more organisms that are sequenced, then the greater the database that can be tied to their behaviors or effects in the environment or in human health. And so that the knowledge would seem to build on itself as time goes on. That's absolutely right. So, you know, one of the challenges is building out these libraries, ensuring that we have good reference databases that we can compare against. Uh, you know, if we find two new uh, bacteria in the wild that uh, that are potentially causing disease and don't have a close comparator to compare them against, uh, we can tell a lot about, you know, based on other organisms that we know and by comparing them to each other. Uh, but it really helps to have this really strong database uh, of, of pathogens and uh, commensal organisms, organisms that live on and around, uh, you know, humans and other animals, uh, and and organisms in the environment. Uh, it also you put your finger on another large problem and challenge in implementing these technologies. They generate massive, massive amounts of data. Uh, and require analysis of massive amounts of data. This requires new investments in information technology to do all these comparisons of sequences, uh, but also it requires uh, investment in skills and ensuring that we have the workforce capabilities to actually translate these data into public health action. Uh, one of the challenges there is, you know, we are competing with the private sector, with academia for these kinds of skills, and uh, that presents a challenge uh, to almost any federal, state, or local government that is trying to implement uh, these really cutting-edge biotechnology approaches. And on that uh, IT resource question, what does CDC have? I mean, a lot of federal agencies have can avail supercomputing resources for different purposes. Are you part of that ecosystem? Since the beginning of the program, since nearly the beginning of the program, uh, we've run uh, high-performance computing resources within the agency, um, which you know probably more modest than other other federal entities uh, by by a long shot. But you know we have have been basically building up those kinds of capabilities across uh, across CDC. Uh, we've been working a lot with uh, with our state and local uh, and global public health partners, though, to figure out how to use these technologies, how to make them more available. Because one of the challenges is, uh, if you you know, it's fairly straightforward to implement the laboratory technologies, the people, the IT requirements, if you have a very well resourced uh, central laboratory. Where it becomes really challenging is if you have you know state laboratories, county, local public health laboratories all over the United States all over the world that uh, that need to run these types of assays or similar assays uh, and need not only the people to actually have the skills to do the work, uh, but access to the high performance computing resources to actually do that kind of analysis. Uh, moving to the cloud is one, uh, one option. Uh, and we have a major initiative that we call AMD platform that will hopefully uh, in the very near future, make a lot of these resources more available to U.S. public health laboratories. 
that extends on work that we've done that's been mostly focused on, on CDC's IT environment. Uh, but it allows us to to potentially draw these into into more laboratories and settings. And, and I imagine there must be a lot of collaboration with other elements, even within the HHS greater ecosystem. We've had on this very show the uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency, HARPA-H, which you know has got its own sequencing going on of setting up agencies and setting up a network of researchers. How do you interact with them? We uh, have been having a lot of discussions and a lot of uh, ongoing collaboration with other uh, organizations and agencies across the federal government that are focused on technology and innovation. Uh, ARPA-H uh, is, is relatively new to the scene. They have a uh, massive mandate, though, as, as you know, uh, trying to basically bring innovative approaches uh, across the entire healthcare spectrum. Uh, our overlap with them uh, may seem narrow. You know, our focus is on public health. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the tools, the means of the, which we approach uh, innovation, the, some of the, uh, the investments that we're looking at, uh, at making and continue to make, uh, there's a lot of overlap there as well. So we, we coordinate with uh, ARPA-H in particular pretty closely. Uh, we also work with a lot of our uh, lot of organizations uh, and operational divisions across HHS. Uh, NIAID, for example, and uh, certainly NIH, especially NCBI, the National Center for Biotechnology Information, which is really, uh, it's a part of the National Library of Medicine, uh, but it has become an absolutely critical resource to, to manage and, and uh, present and share a lot of these data that are being generated. In the field of advanced molecular detection itself, do you ever go back and relook at things where items, phenomena, germs, where the public health problem might have been solved a while ago, but they always have the potential of rearing their heads again and re-looking at some of the older samples, let's say, and learning more about them and being able to anticipate what you need to do to make sure they don't return as a public health menace. I think so. So if you think about uh, approaches like foodborne disease surveillance, you know, state-of-the-art uh, 10, 15 years ago was a technique that we called pulse field gel electrophoresis, which basically involved uh, taking the genome of a bacteria, uh, using an enzyme to cut the genome into pieces, and then running those pieces out on a gel. So you'd get a fingerprint, a, a pattern of bands that, that corresponded to what the, the DNA looked like. Uh, we could then basically compare those gels one against another and, and see what we saw. Uh, it, it's been about 10 years now since we started implementing uh, sequencing in foodborne disease surveillance. And what we found is that uh, the number of outbreaks where we could definitively tie it to a food source, uh, where we could definitively figure out what the what the potential causative agent was, uh, increased very dramatically. And we could approach those uh, those clusters much more quickly. We could identify disease and how it was spreading much more effectively, and we could respond much more effectively. Um, the same sort of approach has been used for, you know, Legionella surveillance for a number of different uh, viral diseases. It's certainly been an absolutely critical force in helping us understand how SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus that causes COVID-19, spreads in populations and, uh, you know, potential ways of, of uh, responding to it more effectively. Sounds like this capability speeds things up a lot. I remember when the Legionnaire's disease first came out, I think it was on a hotel and maybe 40, 45 years ago, I forget now, but it was weeks and weeks till that cause was identified and so on. It sounds like 
that process is much more compressed with advanced molecular detection nowadays. Well, it allows uh, much more definitive determination. You know, they can basically go and, and you know, a part of the challenge with that initial outbreak is, I think, looking for the source, you know, trying to understand especially with an emerging bacterial infection uh, like uh, Legionella uh, at the time, uh, what was causing it and where it was potentially coming from and whether or not it was in fact the causative agent that was making so many people sick. Now, you know, they essentially use these types of sequencing approaches to go out and test a lot of the cooling towers on top of buildings uh, to not only detect for the presence of Legionella bacteria, uh, but to also see if they can compare it to very quickly and very definitively to clinical cases that they see in the area. And so they're very able, very quickly able to determine uh, which water towers, which cooling towers uh, need to be prioritized, uh, which need to be treated, uh, and which may be causing disease. Dr. Duncan McCannell, Director of the Office of Advanced Molecular Detection at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We'll return with more of the interview after this short break. I'm Tom Temin. Tackling national challenges that continue to rise and change rapidly can be difficult. Noblis can help. Noblis brings together the best of science, technology, and engineering to solve complex challenges, like improving transportation and infrastructure systems, countering threats from weapons of mass destruction, and enhancing the operability of naval surface ships. For 25 years, Noblis has been an innovator with the federal government, investing in advanced R&D, enriching lives, and making our nation safer. Noblis, for the best of reasons. Visit noblis.org to learn more. Welcome back to our interview with Dr. Duncan McCannell, Director of the Office of Advanced Molecular Detection at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Before the break, you mentioned the ability to detect certain molecules in locations you might not have thought of before, like cooling towers, to get an earlier picture of whether something is extant in the environment and needs to be warned about or eradicated in some manner. So let's maybe talk about that word detection as part of advanced molecular detection. This could take place in the field. It could take place maybe when a, something is sent to a lab, say a stool sample or someone threw up because of food and that sample got sent somewhere. Talk about detection and where it takes place and the range of places that you can detect pathogens that need to be looked at. Well, that's the other remarkable thing. There has been just an incredible uh, amount of advancement in these technologies themselves, whether that is in the sequencing, uh, genomic sequencing approaches that we use, uh, whether that is the, uh, the systems that, that, that have been developed, uh, whether that is uh, you know the portability of a lot of these systems. So we've got genetic sequencers, genomic sequencers now uh, that, uh, you know, fit on a bench top in a laboratory and require a lot of equipment. Uh, we've got others that are about the size of a paperback book that can be put into Pelican cases and, and transported, uh, you know, anywhere that a commercial airline flies. Uh, we've used these to to bring these sequencing approaches to the front lines, to the points of need, uh, in uh, in places where you know state fairs, where we often see transmission of influenza viruses between animals and people, for example, uh, or at the forefront of uh, a viral hemorrhagic fever investigation. Increasingly, though, these technologies are getting much more, uh, much less expensive, much easier for people to implement. Uh, we're now seeing high school classes that are using sequencing or, you know, studying sequencing as, as part of the work that they're doing. Uh, and it's increasingly getting much more um, ubiquitous across, uh, across society. Which leads to the question of how do you manage what you are capable of doing? Because you can put 
sensors everywhere on Earth, and you'd be overwhelmed with possible germs, that most of which you don't need to look at. On the other hand, you want to get past simply waiting till there's a horrible outbreak somewhere because of bad lettuce. And so how do you manage what it is in the way that you conduct the detection part of AMD? The key to it is making sure that we, uh, we tie these innovations, this work, to public health outcomes. You know, how we are actually using these to make sure that they, they have an effect on, on public health and that the public is safer as a result of it. Uh, it's very easy to go out and just start sequencing things. And, uh, you know, without a, a specific set of objectives in mind, without a set of priorities and strategy that's driving that, uh, without good basis on in epidemiology and, and care, clinical care, uh, you know, you can do a lot of work, you can generate massive amounts of data, but not necessarily move the needle as far as public health is concerned. Uh, a lot of our focus has been on, you know, how do we take a lot of these investments? How do we take a lot of these, you know, where should we be investing in shared infrastructure? Where should we be ensuring that we have the necessary capabilities in place uh, so that we can uh, make sure that these technologies are used most effectively and that the data that they generate uh, is actionable and useful for public health purposes. And do you look at comparative results, say, around the world? <laughs> the reason I ask this is from a personal standpoint, having just traveled uh, extensively in Southeast Asia and eating in establishments where if you set up an establishment like that, say, in Montgomery County, Maryland, you wouldn't even serve the first cupful before the health authorities would shut the whole thing down and wipe it away from the sidewalk. And yet, you know, we looked at each other and said, well, 100,000 Cambodians aren't going to die tomorrow from eating in the same place we're eating. And so there is the maybe a priori resistance that might be in a population. Does that come into effect in how you think about these uh, things that are, are detected and then you got to deal with what's detected? Absolutely. This is something that CDC, FDA, and USDA have been working on for for decades. You know, the truth is our global food supply is increasingly interconnected. You know, there's huge amounts of imports, exports. You know, you alluded to earlier, you know, some of the changes in in some of the uh, the risk factors associated with foodborne outbreaks. You know, I think if you went back 10, 15 years, uh, we'd associate salmonella, um, you know, some of these other very common foodborne pathogens with meat and poultry and other, you know, other sources of potential contamination. Increasingly, we're seeing it's associated with leafy greens and produce, uh, even those that are produced right here domestically in the United States. So, uh, you know, I think in terms of the comparability of data, um, one of the really powerful things is, you know, at a genetic level, at a genomic level, uh, there's a lot of capability to compare these data, to compare the information about these sequences together. I think we have to figure out how to do it in, a, in a, an effective and equitable way. Uh, we need to make sure that the tools are as, as widely distributed as possible. But, uh, you know, I think as we look at global public health, as we look at national applications of these tools for public health, uh, it really gives us an important opportunity to be able to compare these data from across the world, from across the country, uh, from the next county over or from the farmer stand down the street. Now, CDC does have the Office of Advanced Molecular Detection, which you lead. You want to probably, I'm imagining, get out of purely reactive in detection to anticipating what could be happening. How do you do that, and what are your priorities as the result of the anticipatory look at uh, detection? We've been focusing a lot on uh, innovation, but I think we also want to make sure that as we generate these richer sources of data, uh, as we integrate it with, uh, with epidemiologic data and information from the field, that we're using it to not, you know, drive while looking in the rearview mirror. 
uh, we need to be able to look down the road a little bit. We're really excited about the new uh, Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics. I guess it's not that new at CDC now, but uh, we've been partnering very closely with them on uh, on the development of modeling techniques and understanding how we can use uh, you know a lot of these emerging rich sets of data in in harmony with a lot of the other types of data that uh, that we're gathering across the public health system to make faster and better decisions about uh, about how we should be using these data for public health or responding in public health. And when I hear repeatedly big data, big data analytics, you can't have a conversation nowadays about anything revolving data without speaking about artificial intelligence. And I imagine that is a tool that you are bringing in in some manner to aid in this work. Maybe talk about that. I I think we continue to follow the field, absolutely. Um, But I think we're also very, uh, very practical about how artificial intelligence machine learning can be applied to the biological sciences and to public health work. You know, the truth is uh, AI and ML approaches are being used to analyze the signals that come off the instruments that that we've been talking about. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to help with integrating a lot of these massive volumes of data. The truth is a lot of uh, a public health investigation uh, involves data from multiple different sources. Sometimes it is it has structure to it. Uh, sometimes it might be physician notes or epidemiologist notes from the field. And, you know, as you look at some of these uh, AI and machine learning type approaches, being able to actually take a lot of that raw unstructured data, whether it's place or time or just narrative, uh, and classify it into things that are machine readable that can be linked with these genomic data very quickly. I think there's a lot of potential there. Because I would think the danger might be that as AI gets trained more and more with certain data sets and certain expected outcomes from what you learn with sequencing, it could almost rule out something you actually need to know, that there is a wild card somewhere in a certain sequence that, holy cow, this is what's causing XYZ. AI could almost steer you away from that if you're not careful. That's absolutely true. I, I think the other concern I probably should have led with that is, you know, making sure that we can actually validate what we're seeing and that we have confidence in what these models are putting out. Uh, I mean, if you've played with some of the uh, the GPT models out there, you can you know that they have a tendency to hallucinate. I think understanding what the algorithms are actually doing under the hood, especially when they're very, very complex uh, models involving a lot of weighted factors, it can be really challenging to make sure that you are getting consistent, reproducible results across you know the entire public health system. And so uh, I think the bottom line is I think we're embracing these new technologies. We're very excited about their potential, but I think we're also wary and want to make sure that we are approaching them strategically and pragmatically so that uh, so that they're used most effectively in the work that we do. And just a final question, knowing what you know, would you eat a fried corn dog from a county fair? Absolutely. Although I think in that case, uh, the uh, the microbes are maybe not the, uh, the biggest uh, risk to the health, but I-, I would argue that it's worth it nonetheless. Dr. Duncan McCannell, Director of the Office of Advanced Molecular Detection at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. To hear this interview again or share it with colleagues, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Insights. I'm Tom Temin. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Tackling Government Challenges Through Science and Technology, sponsored by Noblis on Federal News Network. 
Tackling national challenges that continue to rise and change rapidly can be difficult. Noblis can help. Noblis brings together the best of science, technology, and engineering to solve complex challenges, like improving transportation and infrastructure systems, countering threats from weapons of mass destruction, and enhancing the operability of naval surface ships. For 25 years, Noblis has been an innovator with the federal government, investing in advanced R&D, enriching lives, and making our nation safer. Noblis, for the best of reasons. Visit noblis.org to learn more.